Hi, I'm Zivi Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please also check out my other podcast, Kids Do Have Time to Read Books. I'm on Instagram at Zivi Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and at Kids Do Have Time to Read. So please follow me. And if at any time you have suggestions, my email is zibby at zibbyowens.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much to my latest sponsor, the Mermaid Pillow Company, mermaidpillowco.com. They make these amazing pillows with sequins on the back and positive messages on the front. And they now even make custom pillows and blankets. It's an amazing company. And if you enter the code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y, you will get 10% off, which is super cool. So please check them out, mermaidpillowco.com. I'm excited to be here today with Amanda Stern. Amanda is the author of A Little Panic, Dispatches from an Anxious Life, a memoir about her undiagnosed childhood panic disorder that takes place in New York City in the Eaton Potts era. She's also written The Long Haul and 11 children's books written under pseudonyms. She's the founder of the Happy Ending Music and Reading Series, which was a multidisciplinary literary event series that took place at Joe's Pub and Symphony Space in New York. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, New York Times Magazine, and the New York Times Book Review, among many other publications. She also writes the Little Panic blog on her website. Amanda currently lives in Brooklyn with her dog, Busy. Welcome, Amanda. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks for having me. So can you please tell listeners what Little Panic is about, although it really kind of tells it from the subtitle, Dispatches from an Anxious Life, but that's only a small piece of the puzzle. So tell us about the book. Sure. So Little Panic is a memoir about growing up with an undiagnosed panic disorder in Greenwich Village in the 70s, around the time that Aton Pates went missing. And it's about how not knowing what was wrong with me shaped the course of my entire life and the ways in which the the adults in my life tried to go about figuring out what was going on with me and in their attempts to figure that out inadvertently. Can I curse on here? Go for it. Fucked me up. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and I love how you did it because you started the narrative when you were very, very young and yeah. went all through the school age years. But then at the same time, you had a more present day. And I kept waiting for them to meet up. I'm like, when are we going to meet? Uh-huh. I kept waiting to see what would happen. So it was really neat how you did that. Oh, thank you. I thought. What made you write this book? In the acknowledgments, you said you avoided writing the book for a decade, and then it took you four difficult years to write it. And then even at the end, you were like, thank God I'm done. I like never want to see you again. Yeah. So, so is that how you felt? Like what what, propel, what like made you? It sounded like you had to do it, even though you didn't want to. I did. My body was like forced me to do it. Essentially what happened was I was working on my next novel. So my first novel came out in 2003 and then I started to write. And that my, was the long haul. That was the long haul. And then I started to write my next book and it was about intelligence testing and took place in the 50s uptown. And it was about a group of psychologists who were trying to come up with the most comprehensive intelligence test known to man. Mm -hmm. And they decided to test on all the Upper East Side school kids. And it was about how they inadvertently fucked them up. (laughs) And so as I was writing it, I was like, this is very familiar. And I mean, obviously I knew what I was doing, but it didn't feel honest. Mm -hmm. And it just, it wasn't working in some fundamental way for me. A couple other people had read it and they were like, this is wildly ambitious. And, you know, you're tackling these topics that you may know something about, but only one aspect of it. Right. So I realized, yeah, yeah, it's not, something about it just wasn't working for me. So I started again 
and a, a different novel. I just started writing a different novel. And this one was me, a memoir about me as a child and coupled with a fictional story about diagnostic testing. Okay. So I was very, just very, I was dancing around this topic that I somehow knew I needed to write, but was afraid to do it. So what I did instead was I thought, well, I'm just going to keep going on the second novel and I'm going to cheat on all of these projects and write my own story down privately and just get it out. And so I, I love that you perceive it as cheating. Yeah, I cheated. like you're, you're, you're the one in charge of all the projects. I know, but they, they're, I, we have, you have a relationship with them. Yeah. You know? No, I understand. Yeah. It's just such a funny way to think no, about I've it. No, I really, every time I'm, if I have a project and I'm leaving it for a week, I feel guilty. I, I'm so sorry. I'm going to have to leave you. You're going to be alone. Here's some hummus and crackers. No, I just, you know, yeah, no. I, I develop a real relationship with the project. So I did feel like I was cheating on it. And I started to write my own story out. And I had all this material, this source material that I had wanted to work with in the first novel, which was about all the evaluations that I had growing up from diagnostic testing. So I wanted to use this source material. So for the my own story that I started to write out, I used all the source material and started to create this sort of collage piece. And I just got really into it and wrote about 100 pages of it until I realized, oh, wait a second, I think this is the project. So I showed the first 100 pages to my agent and he said, this is the project. So that is how I, you know, found my way to writing the the real story and being honest about it. And everything felt, it, it just, it felt right. It felt like it was something that I could I could manage, and it wasn't overly wasn't ambitious. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. So I'm like get overwhelmed talking about it. It's a lot. Is, you yeah. fit a lot in there, and I loved. It. Now it makes sense to me because I was going to ask later why you had included the pages of the reports that you had gotten right. about yourself. Yeah. And now that you're talking about it this way, you know there were a lot of scenes from all the testing. Yeah. But it made total sense within the context of the book, so I wouldn't even have known that that's how it had started. Yeah, it all started because of this folder that my mom had given me wow. that I didn't even know existed. When I was in my 30s, she, she handed it to me and said, do you want this folder? And I said, well, what is it? And I opened it, and inside there were all the tests, results, and all the evaluations for my entire childhood. And part of what you keep saying after you do every single test in this book is like, I don't know how I did again. Right. Like, I did I get that answer right or not? Like this feeling of sort of unfinished, yeah. unsettling test-taking for your whole life. Yeah, it was really unresolved. Yeah, I mean, so just for the listeners. So I ended up taking, I, I was sort of sent on a 10-year testing odyssey, and I underwent all these different series of IQ tests from ages 11 to 19, which is not 10 years, but I'm rounding up. And I never knew why I was taking the tests. I never knew what the results of the tests were. I didn't know what the diagnoses were. And so I didn't know that my mom was receiving these evaluations. And so when she handed me the folder at 35 and said, do you want these? I was like, this is my, the answer to my entire life is in your hands. Were you, were you angry? I was, I was, well, I, I wasn't angry when she gave me the folder because I hadn't looked through it yet. I I mean, I knew what it was, but I hadn't read it. So I brought it home and it was only once I started to read them that I became angry because every single evaluation mentioned anxiety. Mm. And it took me a while to reconcile that, Mm -hmm. you know, that. Like how do they miss it? 
Well, how did they miss it? Or to me, it was more not how did they miss it? It was, it felt intentional, you know, because I was angry. Mm -hmm. So when you're angry, you sort of misapply some of your thinking. And so I was reading it and, and, and was thinking, it's so obvious. It's all right there. Why did they ignore it? That was my, the way that I processed the whole thing. And then it took a little while to realize, no, they were, they were looking for something and we didn't have the language, you know, to talk about it then. No one really had the vocabulary. People weren't constantly saying their kid had ADD or, you know, panic and anxiety disorders. We, it just wasn't, you know, in our conversational, you know, palette. So I got over it, but I was angry. Yeah. Originally. It's really hard to believe that it's not that long ago. I mean, it's really not it's just, right? I mean, I mean, to me, it feels like, I mean, I feel like I'm, you know, a thousand. So it does feel like a long time ago. But yeah, it wasn't that long ago. The interesting thing is that while it feels like, it feels like it was so long ago that when I was writing this book, I thought, is this relevant anymore? It's so dated. I feel so dated. Oh my gosh. But I, I really it's felt so that. relevant. Well, right. But I didn't, I didn't know that because I hadn't been going around yet to schools and talking to schools and talking to parents. And I was writing in a bubble inside of this like void in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, in my apartment Mm -hmm. with my dog. And so there was a bit of, I was slightly mortified writing it and feeling like this is so obvious. Everyone knows this, da, da, da. But when I started to go to the schools and was talking to parents and they would tell me things about what they were doing, I realized, wait a minute, you, what? So much time has passed between the time I was a child and now, and, and we haven't learned how to do this? I thought, I thought we had the language to identify the issue, which we do, but we haven't yet come up with a way to address it at home or to resolve it, you know, in our families. So it's just been a really, really interesting dynamic you know, to feel sort of ashamed and dated and then going into the world and be like, oh, wait, you don't know this. Right. Doesn't it feel kind of validate, like, that it was worth sharing? The pain that you went through has some a greater good? Absolutely. Like, you're helping all these people Oh, now? yeah. That, that's amazing. That feels amazing. But it also breaks my heart. It breaks my heart that it, it has taken this long, that I'm now an adult. I'm no longer, you know, a four-year-old child who's suffering, but, you know, a 400-year-old adult who is now dealing with all these other kids and parents who are in the exact same place. And it just really breaks my heart. And then had you known earlier, you might have been able to avoid some of the more like self-destructive type things that you pick up in the book. Probably. Well, So like self-medicating. Oh, yeah. It was really self-medicating. Yeah, yeah. How you had to cope because there was no other way. Right. Like I feel like a lot of kids with anxiety used to turn, I mean, drinking or drugs or whatever, you had to like find a way out. Yeah. And now everybody is medicated. So they, it's, you know, although I'm wondering about the correlation of drinking and drugs now, has it gone way down because of I doubt it. those medications? So well, maybe it's not, I don't know. Anyway. I don't know. But I do think that so many kids, it's, so, it's interesting that so many kids are medicated now and yet the t- we still haven't taught our parents and our teachers how to address mm. the problems that they're being medicated for. So what do you think parents and teachers should be doing differently? Like what's the most, some of the more egregious mistakes you see? I think some of the most egregious mistakes I see are removing obstacles from your children's life mm. in order to make things easier for them. Essentially, when 
Your job as a parent is to teach your child how to be in reality, how to face reality, how to live in the world, and how to bear, face, and overcome obstacles. And when you're removing the obstacles for your kids, you're, you're taking away a fundamental life skill they're not learning. So that is something I see over and over and over again. And what's that name for it? It's snowplow parent. Is that it? <laughs> so I just read that recently and I, was, I thought that's pretty apt. It's, but it's become an, a real phenomenon now. It's a real problem, the snowplow parenting and helicopter parenting, all of that. It's, it's so damaging and people don't realize it because it feels right. Mm-hmm. It feels like, oh, well, you're, you feel your best intentions, mm-hmm. but you know, they're your best intentions for you, right. but not for your child. And it, it really bothers me and upsets me when I see that parents are, you know, sort of masterminding their children's reality. I think for some parents, I mean, I can't speak to everyone. I feel like it's this push and pull because you're trying to protect your child, right? right? If you see a child in distress, your instinct as a parent is to want to like minimize the distress and protect your child. Right. But like your whole thing when you went to sleepaway camp, like parents are supposed to, like the advice is don't avoid the things that make you so anxious. Right. Right. Like don't, when I was reading, like you stayed home from school some days, your mom would like let you do that. Like mm-hmm. the, the advice today would be like send her to school. Right. Right. Like they sent you to camp and you were dying over it, like did not want to go, felt like your whole world was collapsing. And then you went and the beginning was really painful, but you got over it and then you learned. And then you had this quote at the end about like how brave you were at the end. You said, at camp, I was scared until I wasn't. I went away and didn't come back at the first sign of trouble, which means I am brave. My body made a callus around my feelings. And now I know that being scared doesn't mean staying scared. I'm tough enough to withstand anything. I'm not going back to how I was. I am brave now. I am cured. I am normal. And then a few days later... It returned. Yeah, yeah. All the gains are reversed. Well, I think that, you know, there are two parts to it. It's not just that you want to have your kid face it, you know, that you want to eliminate your child's distress and that you want to have your kid face whatever it is that's upsetting them. It's that you want to explain to them what it is that is causing the distress and how they should handle the right. distress. Give them the coping skills. And then yeah. you send them in. Right, not blind. Right. Not like dumping them into the pool, exactly. not knowing how to swim. Right. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, that's another mistake that parents make is they, they think, oh, well, I'm not supposed to be removing the obstacles. I'm supposed to be throwing them in front of them. And that's not it either. Mm-hmm. So, you know, with camp, yes, it was a good thing that, that I faced something, but it was, it was too big a chunk. Mm-hmm. It was two months away at age eight. I did that too. Yeah. I like never got over it. It's, yeah. And I had a panic (laughs) disorder. So, you know, so it's, yeah, it's really traumatizing. It would be less traumatizing and it would have been a a better experience for me had I gone for one month Mm -hmm. and I had been given the tools and the techniques for how to get through it and for how to face something and get used to it and get through it. And it's only when you have the techniques and the tools so that you can apply it. But without it, being thrown into something without, yeah. you know, any coping skills, you're going to drown. So I just wanted to say one last thing is, yeah, is about, you know, I've, a couple of parents that I've talked to have said, well, you know, when my kids, my kids get worried that they're going to get kidnapped or I'm going to 
die? Or, and I say, well, what do you tell them? And they say, well, I tell them I'm not going to die. And that's ridiculous to worry about that. Nothing bad's going to happen to me. And that is, you know, that's, a, that's another huge problem. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not true. Right. You, you just insurances. don't know. And yeah. so I understand that they want to make their kids feel better, but it makes their kids feel worse if they don't know what to do. And kids really are just asking for life skills. They just want to know what to do in the event that something terrible happens and that they're not thrown headfirst into the ocean without a life jacket. All they want is the life jacket. That's all they're asking for. They're not saying, you know, I believe you're going to die. I know you're going to die. They're just saying, hook me up with a life jacket. That's like in the book, I felt like you kept getting frustrated with your mom when you would ask her for that and she wasn't giving you what you needed. Right. And you had to be like, no, what do I do if I'm, if yeah. I get caught, you know, on my way to the bus, like, yeah, and I don't come back. What should I do? What should I do with that babysitter who takes me away? Like, right. Because yeah. uncertainty is terrifying. Yeah. You know? It's true. And the whole world is uncertain to kids. So I think it's just a parent's job to say, here are the like six main life skills that you need to know. So you wrote this book. Mm-hmm. You've also written like a million other books somehow. Under So you, you use a pseudonym and I did. you write the Frankly Franny series. Mm-hmm. Why are you using a pseudonym for that? So I am, essentially, I'm a, I write adult books, mm-hmm. which you wouldn't know because I only have two. But in my head, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, and in reality, I have, I have more than two because I've written yeah. many adult books. They just haven't all been published. So I started out as, as an adult fiction writer, and the kids' books came to me just sort of out of the blue, and they were offered to me. And I said, well, it's not anything that I do, and I'm not that interested in it. Hmm. You know, so no, I'm not going not gonna to take on this project. And then they said, well, here's how much we could pay you. And I said, I will get to work uh, tomorrow. So, <laughs> so, um, so I decided that I would do it, but I would do it under a pseudonym because I didn't want to confuse my career tracks. I didn't want people to... You know, I knew I was going to be writing two young adult books for this mm-hmm. company, and I didn't want people to then think, oh, Amanda Stern, she writes kids' books, which is ultimately what ended up happening anyway, is that people are like, oh, Amanda Stern, you write kids' books, right? And I'm like, oh! So I did it under a pseudonym, and then that same editor left and went to Penguin and then called me up and said, hey, we need to fill this niche. And I was like, she said, do you have any ideas? And I said, no, I don't. I don't write kids' books. Please don't ask me. I don't want to do this anymore. What if? And I just like came up with this idea on the spot and realized, oh, I kind of do like doing this. So I ended up writing nine books, wow. the Frankly Franny series. And I really loved it. I really loved it. But I, again, didn't want to confuse my readership of six people (laughs) for Amanda Stern with the larger readership for kids. My question, though, is I feel like authors need to have a platform, right? You have to, like, go out and tour and all this stuff and Instagram and whatever. Yeah. How do you have a pseudonym, like, in this day and age? Do you still use your, like, how? Well, I haven't written those books in a long time. Okay, so it was long enough ago? Yeah. The last book came out in, I mean, 20... 12, 2013? It's not that long ago. Yeah, but I see what you're saying. Do you yeah. think you could do it now? Like, could, Under could, my own name? Could someone decide to do that now and pull it off, if, unless you're J.K. Rowling or something? Yeah, I mean, well, in what way would they not be able to pull well, it just, off? 
without having any sort of backstory or not going on podcasts or not going to book tour or not having an Instagram with their pictures. And like, I feel like there's so much surrounding each author that I meet. I see what you're Everyone has their own kind of face of the brand that is themselves the author. And that's like essential to sales and how many followers you have. I don't know. I just get the business of it. It, Yeah, I think... I don't know because I honestly I've written so many kids books and yet I don't know that market. I don't know anything about it yeah. except for I sounded like I was Canadian just there. <laughs> I don't know anything about it, but I did do press for it. I went you did. on yeah, I went on a book tour for You're So Not Invited to My Bat Mitzvah. Right. I did stuff for Frankly Franny. I don't think we had podcasts when okay that it was came a out. silly question I was no just it's not silly at all um, it's not silly at all I just think it's a different it's a different market kids at that age don't listen to podcasts I, mean, I don't know I got away with it and I'm happy about that <laughs> I had so many more questions but we're like almost out of time there was a picture of you on Instagram speaking of Instagram wearing headphones and saying you were doing a secret side project yes so tell me can you tell me anything um, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to tell you so I'm going to. Great. So I've been hosting a book podcast called Bookable, Mm. where I interview an author and we do sort of a deep dive into a book, into their book. And so each episode is sort of doing an x-ray of like the DNA of the book and giving audience, the audience an idea of the soul of the book. And it hasn't launched yet. I don't know when it's going to launch. I don't know where it's going to be hosted, but it's being produced by... A company called Loud Tree Media. Now I'm really going to get in trouble. <laughs> Maybe I... We can delete this if you really can't say it. Can Let's, check. I'll, I'll check afterwards. <laughs> but if he's like, if he's going to fire me for it, yeah, then we'll probably it. delete it. No, it's fine. Well, I don't get paid that much, honestly. But, no, but we still don't <laughs> want you to get fired. <laughs> You're right. So anyway, yeah. So it's a, it's a book podcast. I'm interviewing authors. I don't know when it's going to launch. And it's been a whole lot of fun. Book podcasts are the best. They are the best. This is like best. the greatest thing I've ever done in my life. I'm like having the best time. Well, you're very good authors. at it. Oh, thank you. I'm you're sure welcome. you're good at it too. Nah, I'm okay. <laughs> Do you have any advice for aspiring authors, particularly in the memoir space? Yes, I think I do. Okay. I mean, I have advice. You have to say yes to that question. I think I do. <laughs> I have advice for authors in any, that I meant, I meant particularly to memoirs. Okay, it doesn't have to be to memoirs, but I was just. I have advice to all writers. Great. Let's hear, let's hear it. Okay. My advice is, well, I have two pieces of advice. One, if you really feel in your soul that you're a writer, if this is what you have to do, if someone asked you whether you would write, even if you knew you would never get published, and your answer is yes, then you're a writer and you have to keep writing no matter what and you are never to give up. You have to just keep going. If you're a writer, you write no matter what and you do not give up. That's my big piece of advice. My other piece of advice is that if you're the kind of writer who hates writing and only likes having written, please don't say that out loud. (laughs) That's it. That's it. It's my fight. I can't. I really just, it kills me when writers say that they hate writing. I don't hear that very much. Oh, I hear it so often. Really? It drives me berserk. Yeah. They're like, oh, I hate. And I, I don't know if it's just that they're, they want to quote Dorothy Parker. Uh-huh. And so they're saying, you know, I hate yeah. having written. I love, yeah. I hate writing. I love having written. But I can't stand it. I'm like, well, this is, no one is making you be a writer. Right. This is your choice. This is your privilege. Like it's an yes. absolute privilege. And 
Like no one is gonna. Yeah, it's not like going to the gym. Yeah, where it's no like one. Nice is, to be over the run. Right. I'm not <laughs> crying for you yeah. because you hate writing. You know this profession that you have chosen that you get paid little for, and you know you must have some other comfort in your life to allow you to do this. Like I'm not gonna feel bad for you. So stop saying it. Okay. I hope everybody heard that. <laughs> and, you know, drink a lot of coffee. And, and then I didn't ask what's coming next. You have the podcast coming next. Are you writing another, are you working on another book? I am. I started another book. It's a novel. I'm trying to write, I don't know what to call it. It's, it's crime-ish, suspense And it's like a literary crime novel, I say right now. But in that? nine months, I'll be like, it's for kids. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm doing that. And then I'm uh, doing the book podcast. And I'm also, I've started speaking at schools and organizations and workplaces about anxiety and mental illness. And I'm also, I also started a blog. Yes, called I the, mentioned that earlier. The Little Panic blog on my website, amandastern.com. And that's been amazing. I love that. It's so much fun. And also, I discovered there's a place on my website that says site statistics. That's I just discovered that on Instagram. Extremely exciting. I had like a 15-year-old show me, and she's like, did you know you can see da, da, da. I was like, no way. Wait, on Instagram? Yeah, you can see oh, the, the little bars? of like how many men and women and where. What? They, I'm going to show you when we turn this off. Oh, my God. I know. It's like mind-blowing really? to me. Yes, I oh, couldn't believe so it. Exciting. Well, I, yeah. every day I'm like refreshing on my, and I'm like, 180. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is going to blow your mind. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's pretty great. It's It's all good. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your story. It was super well-written, really valuable, and just, it was a labor of love, and you could tell, and I'm really glad you did it. <laughs> thank <laughs> you one, so much. Just as one person reading it. So thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to my sponsor, Mermaid Pillow Co. Mermaidpillowco.com slash Zibby, enter code Zibby for 10% off. Thanks so much. Check out those really awesome giftable pillows and blankets. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and at Zibby Owens and my new podcast at Kids Do Have Time to Read. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. 